I'm Sinead O'Carroll, editor of The Journal. Before we start this episode, I wanted to ask you something. When the survivors of mother and baby homes felt dismissed by the state's formal investigation, your presenter, Orla Ryan, was really motivated to produce even more reliable, meaningful, independent journalism about what happened to the women and children in these institutions. Our aim has been to provide them with a space to tell you about their own lives, in their own words, using their own voices. So, over the past year, we've been making Redacted Lives, which, as you've been hearing, does just that. It has been a big commitment from our newsroom, but one that we hope you are finding worthwhile and that you believe should be heard by as many people as possible. Now, we're asking listeners like you to support us. A donation will go a long way in helping us to keep doing work like this. Please go to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute and choose between a monthly or one-off contribution. Redacted Lives is a six-part documentary series by The Journal that tells the real story of mother and baby homes, from what happened within to how the state continues to deny survivors access to information, proper redress and ownership of their true stories. The episodes have explored the lives of the mothers and their children as they search for answers in their own voices and their own words. We've followed some of those families on their journeys of possible reconnections and heard from relatives seeking justice for their loved ones who have died. We've also put the state's botched attempt at righting these wrongs under the microscope. And now, in our final episode, we will seek answers from the minister responsible about redress for the survivors and proper burials for the 800 children in Tume. Episode 6 a living wound. This episode contains sensitive topics such as suicide. Roderick O'Gorman is a minister with a lot on his plate. He holds the portfolio of children, equality, disability, integration, and youth. O'Gorman has faced a range of challenges in his first two and a half years in the role, not least the government's promise to end direct provision, the controversial system through which Ireland houses asylum seekers, and, more recently, helping refugees who have fled war-torn Ukraine. But one topic has perhaps dominated his time in office, the fallout from the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes, and the state's bid to make amends for the wrongs of the past. O'Gorman is just the latest minister who has had some involvement with the commission. The inquiry was set up in 2015 by then-children's minister James Riley, while his successor, Catherine Zappone, was in office when it was confirmed that a significant amount of human remains had been discovered in Tume. Attempts to grant adopted people access to their records go back further. Many people will recall one particularly controversial bid in 2001, when proposed legislation would have criminalised adopted people who tried to contact their biological parents if they had registered a no-contact preference. This bill ultimately didn't pass. O'Gorman is trying to succeed where his predecessors failed, he has indeed passed a number of significant pieces of legislation in recent months, but he has also been the subject of much anger 
due to what many people view as major flaws in these acts. He also became the public face of the Commission of Inquiry and the government's defence of it when its report was published, although much of its work was complete before he took office. I sat down with O'Gorman in August to talk about the Commission and its findings, as well as the deep hurt many survivors feel over it. They didn't get the answers they needed from the Commission, so now they want him to explain why this happened and the steps he's taking to rectify it. Do you understand why a lot of survivors were were very hurt and angry that, you know, some of them have lived with this trauma for decades and they thought the commission would, you know, finally represent their views and for not everybody, but for a lot of people, they felt that the findings contradicted their lived experiences. Can you understand why that was deeply hurtful? I can understand that and, and you know, I, I tried to acknowledge that from, you know, the, the day after the, the report was published. But yeah, I, I do and, and, and I have heard that from survivors that I've met in the 18 months since the Commission's report was, uh, was published. Do you agree that a lot of the findings are at odds with people's testimony? There are, I think, I think key, key findings where what we have heard from survivors differs from, from elements of uh, particularly uh, some of those conclusions, yes. Do you stand over the report as minister? Well, as I say, the report is a picture of what happened. It is very detailed. And I think, you know, in terms of a lot of the information, a, a huge amount of the information, I don't think anyone disagrees with in terms of the scale of what was happening in these these institutions. So it is a picture of what happened in these institutions. It's a very important contribution to our understanding, but it's not the sole contribution. O'Gorman is now in the difficult position of having to stand over a report he did not compile and one he knows falls short of many survivors' expectations. During our conversation, he didn't want to be overly critical of the commission itself. But he did admit to being frustrated that none of the commissioners have spoken publicly about the report. Bar Professor Mary Daly's controversial appearance at the Oxford University event in June 2021. Do you think maybe if they had spoken out publicly about how it operated and maybe gave more of an insight into how things worked, that, you know, there might have been less criticism or perhaps a greater understanding of the terms of reference they had to operate under? Do you think that perhaps they should have come out and spoken publicly and that might have led to less criticism of of how the report came about? My own personal view is that some engagement in terms of the workings of the commission by the commissioners would have been useful. And I think following the, the the seminar in Oxford, I think it would have been more than useful. I think it would have been, um, if a determination was taken not to engage and then for one of them to very clearly engage, I think that was, you know, that was very upsetting for relatives. Uh, and I think at that point, some engagement would have been useful. Um, one of the things we've learned from that process in terms of the agency we're establishing on Tume is that before it uh, officially um, winds up, there will be a space for it to engage with an Oireachtas committee. So the issue that kind of arose in the context of the commission won't arise, particularly in the context of the final report on uh, the, 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 the Tume excavation. O'Gorman is not responsible for what happened in mother and baby homes throughout the 20th century nor did he have a say in the decisions made by his predecessors. But 
Right now, he's the one with the ability to do something and the person who holds a lot of power for survivors. Although some have questioned how much he can achieve. You're kind of the latest in a long line of ministers who's who's kind of had to deal with this. Obviously, there are massive legacy issues and it's it's quite a difficult thing to try and deal with. There are there are some really difficult issues in this part of, of my portfolio. And they were issues when I came into the role. I probably wouldn't have had, I suppose, as deep a knowledge of the wide emotional impact of these issues as, as perhaps would have been useful. Over the 18 months, over the, the two years now I've been in this role, I have met, met with hundreds of survivors at this stage. I've met with them officially as individuals, as, as groups. I think as a government, we've taken two really important steps forward in terms of the information and tracing legislation being passed and people being able to benefit from that now. I think, uh, you know, by next year, people will see the intervention in Shum. I think that will be, a, 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 I hope that will be a huge source of solace to, to relatives of, of those who, who died in, in Shum. I think the Records and Memorial Centre that we're, we're advancing, again, gives an opportunity for memorialization of what happened you know, accessibility of, of, of wider records for both individuals and for historians so we can have a kind of a wider understanding of this. No matter what the government does, it can never undo the damage the mother and baby home system caused. It cannot go back in time and reunite families. It cannot give mothers their children. It cannot repair broken bonds. O'Gorman acknowledges this, but is keen to stress that the government is trying to make amends. We are piece by piece trying to rectify parts of that history of the state. Um, and it it, 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 it it can't all be done at once and many bits of it can't be rectified. And I have to, you know, even in terms of the redress we're bringing forward, that will not take away the harms that were done to so many people, but it is the state trying to rectify elements of this and from redress to access to information, to tomb, to, to, uh, to you know, the records and memorial centre. I believe the state is very seriously and in a comprehensive way seeking to make good the, 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 the damage that was done to these women, to their children, though recognising nothing the state can do can ever fully undo it. Some remain unconvinced by the government's approach. You know, we were hoping for that they were going to look after us in some way. They were going to say, listen, the neglect, the abuse, the the denial of even being human, your basic human rights violations, all of it, abduction, kidnapping, um, it doesn't matter. What matters is what they do today. And they're doing nothing for us. And we are somebody's mother, grandmother, sister, and I could go on and on and on, neighbour, friend, colleague. We're everywhere. It's only a little island, you know. And that's who they're telling this to. And that's who they're showing. And they don't realise, I don't think there's a family in this country that wasn't affected. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I think that while we made... 300 amendments to bills that were completely ignored, completely ignored again. So when he says he's listening, 
I don't know who he's listening to, but I can tell you he is not acting on behalf of the survivors. He's acting on behalf of civil servants. He's acting on behalf of certain politicians and acting on behalf of the Attorney General. He is not acting on behalf of survivors. Terry Harrison and Mary Harney are among the survivors who are angry about the government's plans. There's the Birth Information and Tracing Act, to which campaigners had suggested a large number of amendments, only to have them dismissed by the government. And there's also the proposed redress scheme, which currently excludes around 24,000 people. It doesn't include people who spent less than six months in an institution as a child. It also doesn't specifically cater to people who were boarded out as children, a precursor to fostering, people who were subjected to vaccine trials, and people who experienced racism or other discrimination in the system. Anyone who takes part in the scheme also must sign a waiver saying they will not take future legal action against the state. Experts have warned that unless the scheme is extended, yet more inquiries and legal battles are somewhat inevitable. There have been numerous calls, both nationally and internationally, for the redress scheme to be extended. Even the UN Human Rights Committee has criticised the government's approach. Under the scheme, all mothers who spent time in an institution are entitled to a payment, which increases depending on the length of their stay. For example, mothers who spent up to three months in an institution are entitled to €5,000, while those who spent up to 12 months are entitled to around €12,500. Very few women will qualify for the highest levels of payment, as the Commission found that most mothers spent an average of five months in an institution. In recent weeks, I called the survivors we met throughout the series to get their thoughts on redress and other issues. Maria Arbuckle who reunited with her son in 2021 after 40 years apart, is among those who don't plan to apply for redress. She's not entitled to much compensation under the scheme and says the low amounts on offer are insulting. Five grand isn't going to change my life. My son, been taken off me, changed my life. Five grand can't give that back to me. So, it's been based on time rather than trauma. If you were taken to one of them homes and as a baby, you're taken out right up to the day before that six-month line, you're not entitled to anything. But your trauma started from the minute your mother went into one of them homes. You think us girls was happy about going into them homes. So that bond was already done. Mother and baby bond is there from inside the womb. It doesn't even start from outside, it starts from inside. If they don't start being all-inclusive, 
they're going to have a few more inquiries coming up behind because you're going to have the fostered and boarding out people. You've got the children who now adults that's been left out of this one. And you've also got the PFIs that was left out of this one. You've literally three different groups of people. So would it not be better to add them all into this rather than spend the money on three more inquiries coming up behind? But the government isn't taking this approach, even though its own research found that many survivors wanted a more inclusive scheme. It tasked an external company with carrying out a consultation process in 2021. Most people who took part said that all survivors should receive a universal payment. They concluded that although length of stay could be used as one criteria by which to calculate any additional redress above this common payment, many other criteria were deemed more important. Forced family separation, psychological trauma, vaccine trials, and a lack of vetting of families who adopted or fostered children. Mary Harney says that many survivors feel as though their wishes are being ignored once again. She is an expert in the area herself, studying for a PhD in human rights in Galway. I mean, this is claptrap, total claptrap. When you look again at the eligibility criteria that, you know, survivors came up with, the length of time is not in the first four. It's not, you know, it's not in the first four things we've asked for. And again, length of time does not equal harm committed because some people were more, if you like, badly abused than others, right? So we had asked for an across the board common payment, which should be provided to all survivors, including those who spent any period of time in the institution or were subject to forced adoption, fostering or boarding out. That's what we asked for, a common payment. And the common payment is that we all went through the separation of and the disappearance of our family. We were forcibly separated. That's against our human rights. And so the common payment is not for, oh, I spent one year, I spent six months, I spent 10, call that time, you know. No, no, no. This has to go. This has to go altogether, this time thing. Mary believes the main reason for excluding certain survivors and basing the payments off the length of time spent in an institution is simple. To keep costs down. She says the Irish state is ignoring the outcome of the consultation process, known as the Oak Report. Roderick O'Gorman has insisted that the government is deeply committed to helping survivors. But Mary thinks its plan is nothing more than a box-ticking exercise. Excavations, done. Tick. Redress, €5,000. Tick. Health issues, medical card that everybody has. Tick. We've done it. Burials bill, oh yeah, we've done that. Oh yeah, birth and tracing, tick, tick, we did that. And this is all 
you know, so we can pat ourselves on the back and trot out at the next periodic report. Oh, we've done this. We're dealing with that. We did that. We paid attention. No, no, no. You went your own way. Earlier in the series, Mary explained why she brought the state to court over the commission's findings and how it operated. Her legal team successfully argued that she and others who were identifiable in the commission's final report should have been given a chance to read the sections related to them prior to publication and correct any inaccuracies. Marguerite Penrose, who told us in episode 5 about reuniting with her brothers, believes the state could face further legal action if some survivors remain excluded from the redress scheme. You can't start picking and choosing who who gets this. Anybody that had to go through any form of institution, any mother or baby, bags and laundry, whatever it was, is entitled to be included. You know, um, probably a lot of people won't take up the redress. They will choose not to. Um, they might independently take legal action, you know, especially now that so people are coming forward and they're saying, well, no, I'm actually going to take legal action. So I think the more people that are doing that, it makes it makes people think about it. But I think you can't exclude people because we're going back to the same thing again. You know, we're going back to, well, you're not as important because you were only there six months. But six months is six months, you know, six days is six days. You know, everybody who feels that they are entitled to something, they should be able to apply and they're, they should be considered 100%. You know, I think this is just another kick in the teeth for people. This scheme is meant to form part of Ireland closing this chapter of its past. But experts are warning that it is potentially opening the door for it to drag on into the future. Human rights lawyer Dr. Maeve O'Rourke believes some survivors will feel they have no other choice but to take legal action. And it is not fair to continue to require survivors to litigate something that takes years, but also that adds unbearable stress to people who've already gone through the worst experiences many of us could ever imagine. I think the exclusion of people who were separated from their mothers before they were six months old is appalling. It's as if separation as a baby makes no difference to the rest of your life or to the rest of your mother's life. I mean, there is an absolute inability to recognise the seriousness and the nature of the abuse at stake, the absolutely central abuse in the mother and baby homes and the related adoption system was forced family separation. And this redress scheme operates as if it's actually institutionalization for six months or more that is the harm, that's the central harm. Terry told us earlier in the series that she is still looking for her son, Niall. Almost 50 years after he was adopted without her consent. Having gone through so much trauma in their lives, she thinks that the least women like her deserve is to now be treated with compassion and respect. So this bill does not recognise any of it. Furthermore, the whole thing of well-being is that people get some form of nurture Nurture is what they need today. Support, respect and nurture. They never got what they should have got. As expecting mums and, you know, we are not seeing, we we were dehumanised. And this bill reinforces that. And then there's no mention of the women boarded out 
that's not even in the bill. I'd love them to redeem themselves now, even at this late hour, and sit back and, and realise, you know, that this is not anything to do with duty of care and most importantly, respect. You know, we let you down. Every one of us let you down, but we won't anymore. They're terrified of all this business about suing and large amounts of money. Everything's about money, Orla. That's all they know. That's their lives. But there's so much in our lives for every one of us that's priceless. And that's human love. Monica, like Terry, has spent decades hoping to reconnect with her child. No amount of money could ever undo the years of hurt caused by losing her daughter. But she thinks the government's plans for redress don't even attempt to make amends. Monica believes the government is hoping this entire controversy will eventually fade away as public anger starts to die down. The government won't do any more. They won't do any more. They'll do as little as they possibly can and they'll hope it'll go away. It will die down a bit. It's after die, you know the way it's after dying down a bit now. But all it takes every time is something to come out again. And it will happen. There's a scandal every month now, but there is more on the way. And it just starts it all off again. And the next scandal, I don't know, it'll be direct provision or something down the road. The government in place will do the same thing to everyone. Throw them pittance and hope they'll go away. But hopefully they'll be kicked out. I think the sense of anger when it came out first was a lot more than what it is now. But the difference is a lot more people are talking about it now. And are in sh- there's, I think some people, a lot of people are still in shock that it actually happened. Mary, who has been campaigning on behalf of survivors for many years, has also highlighted flaws with another piece of legislation. The Birth Information and Tracing Act finally enshrines in law an adopted person's right to access their birth cert, medical records and other early life information. However, Mary and others say it discriminates against adopted people as it doesn't give them full access to their own records. Again, it's discriminatory. I mean, people have to prove all sorts of things to get a birth certificate. You do not have to do that if you have not been in an institution or adopted in at all in Ireland. But we have to do it. Why? And again, every time we have to go through this, we're reminded of what we went through. And it's a living wound. And just when you think it's getting a little better, the plaster is ripped off and the wound opens again. And we have to go through it again and again and again. And we're getting old and tired. Aside from the issues people have with the legislation itself, there have been a number of other problems. The Act came into effect in October, and around 6,000 people have applied for their records since then. They were originally meant to get their documents within 30 days. However, as reported by the journal last week, many applicants have been told by the Adoption Authority of Ireland 
that they may not get their documents until autumn 2023. Even for those who have managed to get certain records, it hasn't been a straightforward process. I tried to do my request for information on my forced illegal fostering, etc. It was the early days and the portal had all sorts of glitches. So I asked, can you send me the documentation instead, which they did. And I opened it and it said, dear Colin. Now, that would make you laugh. It's funny, but it's not funny because we've already been denied our names over and over again. And it's this kind of insensitivity and carelessness that causes people to cry when they get this kind of stuff. Redress and the rights of adopted people to access their information are just two of many outstanding issues. Another that will drag on long into the future and be one of perhaps the most painful for Irish society will be the excavation of the former mother and baby home in Shume, County Galway. As we heard earlier in the series, the presence of human remains at the site of the former institution was the catalyst for the Commission of Investigation being set up in 2015. It has been 10 years since Catherine Corliss first published her research and almost six years since it was confirmed that a significant amount of remains are present at the site. Last month, the government launched a recruitment campaign to appoint a director who will oversee a team that will lead the intervention at the site. Minister O'Gorman is hopeful that work can finally begin early next year, once the director is chosen. But ultimately, what will be found at the site, how long it will take, and whether any remains will actually be identified, is still uncertain. It's a very complex process, and you've spoken about that before. Mm -hmm. So many families are hopeful that even some of the remains can be identified. Mm -hmm. How likely do you think that is? Well, it's it's not for me to kind of speculate on that. What I do is I I work on the basis of the advice I've received from experts. Uh, And as you know, someone like Neve McCullough, who would have been involved in the the original excavation that was uh, undertaken by the Commission and who advised us in terms of the legislation we brought forward, she and others believe it is possible to identify remains and that's why the legislation and the requirements about what the agency is going to have to do under the legislation is so detailed and particularly this new uh, section of the process that Neve McCullough advised us to add in the idea of post-recovery analysis where the uh, forensic archaeologists will look to and, 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 and not to put this crudely but reassemble the remains of, of, of the children so when uh, DNA sample is taken, that can, I suppose, match as large a selection of bones as possible to one particular family member. So that's a new process that's been added in. I think it really strengthens the processes the, the agency will undertake. And I think it'll better enable us to be in a position to hopefully get successful DNA identifications and return remains to, uh, to family members, which is, I suppose, core about what we're trying to do in June. But that process, it could take years, is that fair to say? I think it will take time. 
And I think it's likely remains maybe identified at different stages throughout the process. But I think the process will take a number of years. And I think we've we've always been upfront with relatives in terms of this is a detailed process. This is a process that will take time to get right. Uh, and I think having taken this long, um, I, I do think relatives recognise I suppose the level of detail we've put into the, the the legislation, the requirements we put on the director, onto the agency, and let's give this the time to do it right and hopefully get as many successful identifications of remains as, as we can. And as we know, family members who get a successful identification of remains may can can have those remains returns with them and can make a determination how they want to see them uh, reburied in a respectful manner and remains that aren't identified will also be reburied in a, in a respectful manner as well. And that will be decided uh, in accordance with engagements with the families later in the process. Relatives who believe their loved ones are buried in tomb are watching this process apprehensively, as well as anxiously waiting for the excavations to begin. People like Anna Corrigan are still trying to get access to relevant paperwork and accountability for what happened to their families. If I won the lot of tomorrow and I won the 200 million, the Euro- European million, I, I, I would buy a legal team of, you know, 100 people and I'd walk and I'd just storm the fucking courts. I'd storm the courts and i just ensured that things were done right. Anna has spent years trying to get answers about what happened to her brothers. She knows all too well that nothing related to Tume happens quickly. Whatever the outcome of the excavation process, she hopes that the revelations of recent years won't be forgotten and families will be given the opportunity to lay the children who died to rest. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a part of Irish history that can't be airbrushed out. But no, it has to be. It has to, you have to stand up and take accountability for it. And in acknowledgement comes healing, you know, and in truth and justice, accountability comes healing, right? And in the truth being known, and it, it brings closure and it brings finality. And I mean, compensation, as I say, for survivors and answers for people who've lost family members. And it's as simple as that. Like, I mean, I don't know, if, as I said, if I found my brothers, would they want to follow the Irish state if, the, if they were illegally adopted? That's not my choice. My choice is just to get answers for me, to know, yes, you have two brothers, and they're dead and they died in Chum. Then I'll decide. But if you can, if I can be guaranteed that my brothers are actually dead, well, then maybe a civilized ceremony to move them over to uh, the graveyard in Tume and then put up the plaques that was erected, you know, and that kind of stuff. Or if I decided, if they said, well, Anna, we have reassembled party, okay, well, then open my mother's grave and put them in with my mother, you know. But it's the answers. It's the answers, it's the not known, it's, that's torture. Mother and baby homes existed all over the world. But Ireland sent more women and children to these institutions than any other country in the 20th century. As we've heard throughout the series, tens of thousands of people passed through the system. Countless families had at least one member who spent time in a mother and baby home, county home, Magdalen Laundry, industrial school, or other institution. This system of incarceration was propped up by the United Front 
of the Irish state and the church. Women who became pregnant outside marriage were viewed as sinners, regardless of the circumstances of their pregnancy, and sinners were punished. Unmarried mothers and their children were hidden behind high walls. Their very lives were redacted. As we've heard from the women themselves, children were often taken away without their mother's consent. In 2022, it's hard to fathom how such a cruel thing could be allowed to happen repeatedly. The trauma of forced family separation cannot be underestimated. And the pain many survivors experience to this day is profound and unending. The impact of the mother and baby home system casts a long shadow over Ireland. Many people are still trying to find their loved ones or get answers about their identity. These women and their children were silenced for so long. No more. Survivors are reclaiming their voices and Ireland is learning that it can no longer ignore them. We will never wipe out what happened, never. But we can create for future generations. You know, we can say, you do not have to live the way we did because we have paid the price already. You don't get freedom by sitting on your backside. You don't get justice either. And I think memorialization for future generations so that it never happens again. And we've said that over and over again. But of course, it's happening again in direct provision. We see it all the time. It is like, will we ever learn anything? I went on that journey. Not Roderick O'Gorman, not Mial Martin, not any of them fellas. None of them went on that journey. It was times years ago, I didn't want to be here. But I do want to be here now. And if that's just hoping that I meet Nicola, my family meets Nicola, that's why I want to be here for all of them. And just to see what the outcome is going to is going to be. Not will it be, is going to be, because it is going to happen. I got frightened, Orla. I always said, don't let me die without talking to him, hugging him, connecting reconnecting with him because we did connect and we had a special time together. Yeah, and my genes are probably oozing out <laughs> as well as his dad's. Terry, if if Niall does hear this, if some if he comes across it or someone send it to him or whatever, if he's listening to this, what would you say to him? Love you. Love you to the moon and back. And never stop. As your mummy, your mother. I'll be his mother till the day I die. Thanks for listening to the final episode of Redacted Lives. I'd like to take this opportunity to sincerely thank the survivors who shared their stories with us. This series would not have been possible without them. Many, many issues arising from the mother and baby home system are unsolved. 
and we'll remain dedicated to covering these topics comprehensively and sensitively on The Journal. If you want to get in touch with your story or another issue, you can contact us in confidence by emailing redactedlives at thejournal.ie and thank you to all those who already have. Redacted Lives was created and presented by me, Orla Ryan, and produced by Nikki Ryan. Sinead O'Carroll was the executive producer. Dara Brophy and Christine Bohan were production supervisors. Taz Kelleher was our sound engineer. And design was by Lorcan O'Reilly. With thanks to Laura Byrne, Susan Daly, Adriana Costa, Carl Kinsella and Jonathan McRae. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in these episodes, you can contact the Samaritans by calling 116-123. Subscribe to Redacted Lives, and you can help us keep telling important stories like these by sharing this series with a friend or leaving us a review or rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow all the latest updates on thejournal.ie or via our Twitter page, at Redacted Lives.